G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Connecting faith to life. Vision. Coming up today on The Story. You go in and you've got these visions of having a fabulous school and perfect kids, but you you know, you realise that life is not like that. One of the funny things over there is with the builders, they're great at building, but they never finish anything off properly. So my vision of all these beautiful buildings, you know, with properly finished (laughs) everything, in the end it's kind of like, well, if the doors are hanging and the hinges are not falling off, well, we're doing pretty good. (laughs) The Story. G'day, I'm Jimmy Colfax. Welcome to The Story. Today we have part two of missionary Marita Simpson sharing her amazing story. As we heard last time, Marita is from the east side of Melbourne and has started a school in a remote area of Uganda, helping orphaned and vulnerable children. We'll find out more about the challenges she's faced as a single lady leading a ministry in that society, and she'll reflect on some of the lessons she's learned from the whole experience. But first, we're going to pick up from where we left off last, finding out how she came to adopt her Ugandan son, Jazz. Marita is chatting with Eric Scatterbo in our Melbourne studios. I met him when he first came to stay with my friends. And at that time, I very flippantly said to my Australian friend, well, if nobody wants to look after him, I'll have him, you know, as you do. (laughs) And uh, at that stage, there was a lovely Ugandan lady who said, no, she'd had a vision that God had given her another child to look after. And so he went to live with her and she raised him for about six months while he got well and all of that kind of thing. But then in February, about six months later, I got a phone call from my Australian friend and she said, well, you know how you said back in August that you would have him if nobody wants him? Well, Mama Annette can't look after him because of her own medical reasons. Would you like to take him? He said, now, no pressure, but if you would like to have a think about it and come back to me. so. And so, of course, I um, I couldn't say no, of course, and now mm. he's mine. So. And did he steal your heart? Yes, he did. He did. He did. And, you know, the older he gets, the more I love him. So, yeah. And how old is he now? He's seven, turning eight this year. So I've had him for about six years. And so you adopted him in 2014. Yes, yes. So I followed through the fostering and then adopted, yeah. But there were some challenges. Yes. Um, technically, you have to adopt foster for three years in, or you used to have to foster for three years in Uganda before you could adopt but we decided to apply for an early adoption and uh, we got to the courts and I didn't realise that a single female is not allowed to under law cannot adopt a single male child which I didn't even know until I was actually in the middle of the court process oh wow but uh did you think he was going to be taken away well I didn't probably because I didn't even know that was a law it kind of it was a bit like, oh, <laughs> so so it kind of crossed my mind. But then I was also told, don't worry about it. And what eventually happened was we were granted, I was granted the adoption on the basis of my age and the basis of his age and the basis of the work that we're doing in Uganda. So they went quite in depth into everything. And, and, and we also had the permission from the family and all of that kind of thing. So, yeah, so God is, God is so good. So little Jazz became your son. So he's my son, yes. Oh, that's fantastic. Yes. And, and other children? Are now living with you as well? Yes, had another little girl, a little girl called Fausta. The the police, earlier this year, the police called me up to the police station, which is located near us in Belisa. They know you? 
they they know me because we're just behind the police station and we've had a few other issues with them. But they uh, came up to me, called me up to the police station, and I thought they'd called me up on another issue. And I got up there, and there's a little nine year. Turns out she's a little nine year old girl sitting there, extremely malnourished, who'd been abandoned by her mother. So the police asked me, "Well, could we take her into care for a little while while they try and trace?" the mother and the family. And so, now is that common that you get these kind of calls? Not not in Belize. No, not for me. This is the first time that's actually happened. Oh, no, no, sorry. This is the second time that's actually happened. So it's not not that common. Um, and because Belisa is it's very family-oriented, so often if there's children, um, children will be absorbed by their relatives and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Or, or Belisa will send them down to Missindi or Homer, which are bigger, bigger regional centres for care. So, yeah, so this little girl turned up. So they asked us, would we take her into care while they try and find her mother? So she was with us for a couple of months and we did all kinds of advertising all all around Uganda because she was speaking Swahili all around Uganda to, to try and see if there's any known relatives and that kind of thing. Then what happened a couple of months later, one of my staff members actually spotted the mother down at the local market and called the oh, police. Okay. Yeah, and the police pulled the mother up and she was... Uh, in the police cells for a couple of weeks while we tried to find out information from her. But she, she refused she to She refused say. to talk. She was very, um, very evasive, mm. um, obviously in poor condition herself, but really didn't have any affection towards our girl or anything like that. So then we asked the police, could we take the mother for psychiatric assessment so that we knew where we stood with Fausta, the daughter. Mm. So the mother came to us for a couple of days and then she just up and disappeared and we haven't seen her since so that was so she's still living with you yes yeah, so faust is still living with us um i'm i am formally fostering her and we'll probably apply for adoption this year if, oh. we, if we, we can't find any family so your family's growing <laughs> yeah so. now when you say she's living with you you're not in a very big house yourself no. how, how big is your house but at the moment uh well at the moment Jazz and I, my son, are living in a little four by four hut. Is our sleeping room? Our kitchen is another little hut, and but Faust is living, sleeping with my house help in another little hut beside us. But we are moving. We have got a bigger house. But that's house. not all. No, no. There's I've also, two other yeah children. Two other children. Um, also got Jeremy was one of our medical cases. So part of our work is that we also assist children getting to Kampala to help with their medical because because of the poverty levels they can't even get to Kampala for assessment let alone treatment and that kind of thing so there's a number of children in our area that we assist getting down to Kampala and getting medical help and Jeremy a little 12 year old was one of those children so about three years ago he came onto our program Uh, earlier this year he rolled up at our property and I thought he'd come up for a medical appointment but he'd bought himself up because he's uh, he was living with a father who's an alcoholic father and he was sleeping with his aunt but she couldn't feed him and so he was scavenging food off the neighbours and that kind of thing and I think mm. he just just had a dear little boy just had enough and came up and, and so he brought himself he brought himself to up to our compound. property yeah so then we had a meeting with him and his father and the village leaders and the police. Um, he just flat out refused to go back with the father. And uh, so we agreed that he could live with us during the term time and go back to his aunt and his father in Christmas holidays, which is what he's done. Okay. So. And then one other child. This house is getting crowded. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Except, except Jerry's actually gone back to his family oh, okay. more permanently now. So with Jerry, he um, he came to us about 
three or four years ago, his mother was mentally disturbed and we were asked to take him to help him with his schooling and to give him help, make sure that he got a proper education. His mother really loved him, but she wasn't uh, doing things like keeping him out near the fire and that kind of thing, so not, not a safe situation. So he came to live with us on the property and then uh, then his father, who was apparently unknown, but then once Jerry had been living with us for a couple of years, his father suddenly decides reappeared. to reappeared and decided to claim paternity. Um, and we find often kids are apparently abandoned, but once we get involved, then parents will come out of the woodwork. Now, why is that? What's How is it in their interest to all of a sudden? Well, because my kid's in a good school and, you know. Oh, <laughs> so, so it's a status it's thing. It's a status thing, yeah. Um, oh, okay. Anyway, the father turned up and said that he was going to claim paternity and all of that kind of thing. So then it was like, well, we'll work with you to build a relationship with Jerry, your boy. So what happens now is he's actually, and there's also an aunt and extended family involved. And the aunt this year requested that Jerry go back and live with the family. And so he's gone back to live with the family, but he still hangs around us, like comes comes early morning and stays until later, later in the evening and then goes home back to his other family. Um, occasionally stays over with us as well. But he, he was living with us for a couple of years, but oh, just okay. recently started to go back. Okay, so you have the school. You're the director of yeah. the school. <laughs> and so that yeah. takes up a big deal of your yes. time. Plus yeah. you have to have the property managed. Yeah. Yeah, so my, my time is basically management, um, property management. Now, you started off as a teacher. Yes. Do you teach at all? No, no. Well, I don't know. Well, number one, because of the language. Um, number two, it's a primary school and I'm a secondary trained teacher. Oh, okay. So you have to wait till they get old enough. Well, <laughs> and num- number three is I, I keep saying I'm going to go into the classroom, but I just time is always mm-hmm. against me because yeah. of the management issues. So, But it keeps ticking along? It does, it does, and we're very blessed that we've actually got quite a stable staff and strong directors. So when I was home, I broke my leg unexpectedly a couple of years ago and had to be home here in Australia for eight months. And, and this, Yeah, how did they do? Yeah, no, they did great. We were really, really pleased at how they handled it over there without me being on the ground. So, Well, that's great. Yeah, so that was a real blessing. I mean, that's every missionary's mm. hope is that you can work yourself out of a position. Yeah, that's exactly right. That so. it's not all dependent on no, you. Right? It no. all collapses when you're away. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so they, they do. And I've got a strong team in Uganda, which is great. You're listening to The Story. Today, Eric Scatterbo is once again chatting with missionary Marita Simpson, founder and director of Amari, an organisation that provides Christian education for orphaned and vulnerable children in northwestern Uganda. Next, Marita will reflect back on her whole experience in Uganda and share some of the valuable lessons she's learned along the way. That and more when we return. The Story. If this program has highlighted something you'd like prayer for, we'd love to pray for you. Call 1-800-PRAY-FOR-ME. That's 1-800-772-936. It's a free call. Or text 0401-132-888. You're listening to The Story. 
Today, Eric Scatterbo is chatting with missionary Marita Simpson about how she's gone from growing up on the east side of Melbourne to starting and directing a school as a single lady in a remote area of Uganda. We've heard about her heart for helping orphaned and vulnerable children and how a few of them are actually living in her home. Next, it's time to reflect on what she's learned from her experiences living and serving in Uganda. A couple of things. I'm, uh, probably most importantly to me is, you know, if God places a call on your life, and I knew that I was definitely called to go back and work in Belisa with national children, and he will put things in your life that encourage you, that hold you. When, when the going gets tough, you can look back. A few different things like my team in Australia who supported me without knowing what we were doing, really. Um, wow, that's faith. Yeah, that's, yeah uh, somebody <laughs> somebody gave us uh, very good friends gave us the money for the first school even before we'd registered before I had any children before we had land I had this money set aside wow. for our first classroom so when now going, these were people who had worked with you in children's ministry yes, in the past yes, so yeah, they yeah. they knew you and had faith in you yes yeah so that was uh, that's a big boost of confidence big, big blessing so little little things that you can hang on to so when the going gets tough you can hang on to them and say hey I know I know that God has called me. And then on the ground, you know, you've got to learn to, we think we know a lot and we think that we're very aware and we think that we're well educated and all the rest of it. And we are, but. All that schooling you had, you get, you have a master's in education. <laughs> yeah. So, Sometimes you just throw that out the window when you yeah. have these unique cultural differences. Is it, that right? Is it, well, not throw them out the window, but you've got to learn to step back and say, hey, I'm a guest in their culture and I have to mm-hmm. learn to do things, as long as it doesn't contravene the Bible, I have to learn to do things mm-hmm. the way they do it culturally. And so that's been a, a big learning thing for me. Um, Some of this stuff they didn't have in your classrooms. It's not in the no. instruction book. <laughs> no, no. Can you talk about any one uh, thing like that? Well, things, things like um, when, when we first started, because your heart is to help people and our heart is to help people, like if, if somebody locally up the road had a fire or something, we were like, oh, we can come in and we can help and we can, you know, rebuild your house for you. And we did that early on. But then I've learnt down the track, well, that's creating a bit of a dependency. Yeah. And so yeah. they'll come to me instead of going to their family for assistance. And so what I've learnt now is if, if people have a problem, we say that we'll come in a bit later and we'll we'll fix your roof, but your family and your community have to build the rest of the house first. And so it's not just always the white person coming in mm-hmm. and, and doing that kind of thing. And, and even with our school, although our children are basically sponsored, we say to the parents they've got to contribute something towards their education, whether it's cash or whether it's firewood or whether it's bringing some food or whatever. They've got to make a contribution. So that, the whole idea is no longer is anything just free. No, Exactly. There has to be a contribution. Yeah, and even with our medical children going to Kampala, the family has to provide some money for their first leg of the transport and that kind of thing. So Because human nature being what it is, if it's free, it's not valued. No, exactly. And they'll come to us all the time first instead of trying to solve the problems themselves. So that, that's been an interesting learning experience for me. So sort of backing off a little bit that way. Also, uh, witchcraft is there. Yep. Very, very, uh, very animistic. You know, I believe Belize is actually one of the top areas in Uganda for witchcraft and, and animism and things. So, so it's. Uh, I'd imagine you've seen a few things. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Anything you can share with us on radio? Yeah. Um, I just remember very early in my very early in my experience. I 
very first teacher that we had was living with me on the property. We were sleeping in the school at that stage because we didn't have any housing. She was in one room and I was in another room. Came and banged on my it door. It makes your commute very easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, brilliant, isn't it? <laughs> so, Just roll is. over and there's your class. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, so she came and banged on my door one night, totally petrified because there was an owl that was uh, an owl that was hooting outside the window. And what's the problem with uh, an owl? Well, apparently in Ugandan culture or in African culture generally, if an owl hoots, it means that either somebody in the village has died or somebody is going to die. So she came so that's banging. That's a bad omen. Mm, as is, it's an omen for them. Yep, exactly. So she came banging on my door, um, totally petrified about this owl that was hooting in the corner of our property. So my response is, well, you know, yeah, how do you handle that? Yeah, well, I, I just said to her, look, it's either an owl and it's God's creature and it's just having a sing song at night, so let it be. Or if it's demonic, we just pray about it and the power of Jesus is greater than the power of the owl. So you just tell the owl to be gone in the name of Jesus, which she actually did in the end. But it was a bit of an eye-opener to me because they're highly spiritual people. So they'll go to church all day, Saturday, Mm -hmm. hold a prayer meeting all day, Saturday night, and then go to church on Sunday. So their whole life is church and spiritual things. Mm -hmm. But yet there's this real animistic stronghold over them and superstitions yeah and superstitions and that kind of thing so i'm not saying that the spiritual world is is i mean i i believe that there is a very strong spiritual presence but i also believe in the power of jesus of course so of course and have you seen demonic forces uh yes yes have seen different people affected by the demonic and have seen them released by the power of jesus as well few occasions staff have come up and complained about living in a particular hut because somebody keeps throwing little bits of um, cotton wool into their hut, cotton balls of cotton, and apparently that's a witchcrafty, that's a way of doing witchcraft against the person. So is there demonic opposition to what you're doing? I I think there is. Um, To me, it's not as obvious as a really physical, I can see it happening, but certainly things things will happen around. I've I've had a bit of sickness on and off that I've really had to stand against Mm. from a demonic, what I believe is a demonic oppression. It's hard to pinpoint exactly. It is hard to pinpoint. Um, For me, I I think for me, I've got to be a bit careful because I know that the way that the devil plays on me is that he will come and he'll niggle me with, um, I'll get reports saying that, you know, so-and-so saying this and -and so-and-so saying Mm. that and -and so-and-so saying this and the community doesn't like this and the community doesn't like that. And then I'll start to get all hot and bothered and uh, that kind of thing. So I've had to learn to back off and say, no, you know, God has called me to this. This is my calling and I can't let that come in. And so it's it's more like an, rather than a physical thing, it's more like an oppression that Mm. I can can come under if I'm not careful. Well, of course, because the devil does not want this to be successful. No, no. He doesn't want a whole community of young Christian people. No, he doesn't. So there's, you know, and there's different um, medical issues that have happened. A few blockages. We're still waiting for our land title at the moment. So so. even though you went through all of those hoops, you still don't have the title? Don't have our title in our hot little hands, no. (laughs) Even though it's been several years. Yep, yep. Seven, seven, eight years counting, so... So that's been blocked on and off because of the oil and because of the land disputes. Um, apparently, it's now free, now um, open for applying for titles and things. But because we're, you have to wait for government surveyors and they want to be paid extra money and all of this kind of thing. So mm. it's a bit of a long process. Okay. And uh, another 
challenge you face there is tribalism. What is that? Yeah, tribalism is very, very strong. Like we've got about, uh, we're, we're in the, working with the Bagungu tribe, but we have a lot of people from the lake shore around and, and a lot of our builders, particularly from another tribe called the Alua tribe, another tribe called the Lugbara tribe. And there is a lot of friction between the different tribes. Mm, um, okay. Some of your stronger Christians will rise above it, but a lot of them, you know, like um, the Bagungu cook is giving more food to the Bagungus than they're giving to the Aluas. And so... Well, you mean on your staff. Mm. So your staff are Mm. from different tribes. Yeah, yeah, staff are from So they're being accused of being Mm. biased toward their own tribe. Can we have our own Alua cook? Because, you know, so... Oh, they want to have two cooks. Exactly. So, no, sorry, I'm not getting you a cook for just five people because you can't get on with the Bagungus. So so it's kind of those those sort of issues. Um, I would never have even thought about something like that. Yeah, and I don't think we in the West will ever understand the depth or the hold that tribalism has mm-hmm. on yeah. on this kind of a people group either. So, yeah, so I've got to learn to deal with that as well. Yeah. And then finally, you said that God doesn't always do things exactly the way you expect. No. Well, Listening to this whole conversation, I, I would say that's probably <laughs> the case. But do you have something specifically in mind? Oh, well, you know, you, you go in and you've got these visions of having, a you know, a, a fabulous school and perfect kids and and highly educated teachers and blah, blah, blah. But, you you know, you realize that life is not like that and it's one day at a time and God's working through them and he's working through me and uh, he's working through the community and and it's a lot to – you know, um, one of the funny things over there is with the builders, they're great at building but they never finish anything off properly. And so – Is that right? Yeah. So, so my my vision of all these beautiful buildings, you know, with properly finished everything, <laughs> is like in the end, it's kind of like, well, if the doors are hanging and the hinges are not falling off, and and the bricks enough. are not falling down, well, we're doing pretty good. So, <laughs> so that that that's all a bit of a um, bit of a laugh. So it sounds like the Lord has really been challenging you throughout this whole process. Yeah, oh, definitely, definitely, and it's all you know through. We're always learning through life, and we're always growing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have to revise your perceptions, and uh, you have to revise how you work with people, and revise how you work in different cultures, and mm-hmm. you know, and try and work out what is above everything spiritually, but what mm-hmm. is cultural, and you know, do I go in and change things that are cultural that are not necessarily against the Bible? Is mm-hmm. that my job, or do I have to work within the culture? as long as it doesn't contradict the Bible, but mm-hmm. then where yeah. is the line? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and that's almost on a case-by-case basis. Yeah, so that's all, um, you know, and you learn that God works in different people different ways, and the way he reaches us in the West is going to be different to the way he reaches those in other countries. And You have to be flexible, it sounds you like. You do, you do, and you, your your perceptions of what is right and what is wrong certainly take a... Take flexible, a, but within the bounds of mm, biblical guidelines. Yeah, and even yeah. then it's like, well... To me, that's a biblical guideline, but is is it really a biblical guideline, or is it my interpretation of what I think is a biblical guideline? Mm. So that, those and, kind of and things, and it's maybe of, culturally, yeah, culturally a bit different. So, yeah, yeah. Wow, uh, we will pray for wisdom for Marita Simpson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you. <laughs> we'll need any prayer we can get. <laughs> and going forward, what is the future for Marita and Amari? Well, d- definitely, we're, we're just taking it one year at a time. So we we made a very deliberate decision when we started that we would add on a class each year so that we're not growing too big too quick and that kind of thing. So so next year, we're up to P7 and we'll be introducing boarding and then and really just following year by year as we're going. So And then maybe one day... 
you will be able to teach the year 12 students <laughs> <laughs> in English. Coming with my accounting. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your story. No, thank you for having me. That was Eric Scadabo chatting with Marita Simpson, the founder and director of Amari, a Christian school for orphaned and vulnerable children located in Balisa, Uganda. Now, we've been mentioning how incredible it is that Marita has done all this as a single lady, actually the only Australian for miles around in that part of the country. But she'll be quick to point out that she did not do it alone. Her faith in God has helped her every step of the way, and she's had a remarkable support team both here in Australia and in Uganda. As the Bible says in Ecclesiastes, two are better off than one because together they can work more effectively. If one of them falls down, the other can help him up. Two people can resist an attack that would defeat one person alone. A rope made of three strands is not easily broken. We pray that the Amari team will continue to remain strong, relying on and trusting in you, Lord, and that they will be able to overcome any obstacles that may come their way. Amen. Well, if you'd like to learn more about Amari and how you can sponsor a child, the website is www.amari.org.au. That's amari.org.au. Well, thanks for joining us. I'm Jimmy Colfax, encouraging you to share your story with someone today. Next time on The Story. This happens to a lot of folks. They're just not where they need to be. Uh, If I want to swim in the ocean, I have to go there. If I want to go for a bushwalk, I I have to go there. I can't go on a bushwalk in my backyard. You have to centre yourself where you're celebrated, not tolerated. Pastor Chris Maynard is the founder of Active Christian Ministries and has a passion for helping people find their full potential in life. He'll share his story and a big dose of encouragement next time. The Story. Just another way vision is connecting faith to life. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, vision is listener supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.